Hello, hello, and welcome to the Reformed Singaporean Podcast. Singaporean podcast where I'm Chris, the reformed Singaporean that the title refers to. And in today's episode, I'm joined by my very special guest and dear friend Isaac. Where together, hi, yeah, yeah hi, where together hi. we will be talking about this very crucial topic, which is called unconditional election. So, uh, as you guys may know, we are at our second episode of this topical series, the Tulip series. Okay, previously we talked about total depravity, where we addressed the nature of man. Is he dead? Is he partially dead? Is he sick or is he dead? Right, right. So we, we talked a lot about that. Can man ever choose God on his own? Um, can man ever come to Christ on his own? Or are we going to believe the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44, which says, no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Okay, And in verse 65 of the same chapter, Jesus also says that no one can come to the Son unless it is granted to him by the Father. So we'll talk more about that, you know, this whole granting of the Father. What does the Father grant? What does the Father choose? Right, so we, we talk, we'll talk a lot about these things today. And, and, and I hope you guys are excited because I surely am, and I'm pretty sure Isaac is as well. So I guess yeah. to start us off, right, right, you can hear the enthusiasm in Isaac's voice here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to, to, to really start us off here, maybe Isaac, could you tell us a bit about, I guess, what, what, why is this important? Like, why, why is, you know, predestination is such a scary subject to some. The predestination is such a intimidating topic. You know, pe- people just usually resort to lots of discussion, debate, but really, I, I think for most of us who really do, are not the debating kind, we, we tend to cower away from talking about these kinds of things. Why, why, why do you think it is so? Why, 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 yeah, maybe why do we cower away? Yeah, I, I, I oh. guess, why, why does predestination have this negative stigma to it today? Like, like why, why do people not view it in a good light? I think the reason is simple. I think people don't want to think about salvation. People don't want to think about God. People just want to think about ourselves. You know, how can we come to God? How can we choose God? How can we have our own autonomy? Uh, that's the most common term being thrown around. How do we live our lives freely? <laughs> especially during living in a society where freedom is such a huge term that everyone wants it, you know, especially with uh, the, L- the rise of the LGBTQ, the rise of everything, actually. It's all about our own freedom, our own choices. We don't want to be limited by God's choice. It's unconditional. No, I want God's choices to be conditional. Conditional by who? Conditional by me. It's always it's all about me. We are living in the I culture today. And so a lot of people don't like this understanding that I don't have the freedom. And so that's why I believe that most people don't 
I won't say they don't like it, they don't want to believe in it. And that's the mentality today. If I don't believe it, it's not true. Right? This is the most standard idea that we have today. As long as I don't believe it, it's not real, it's not true. And so I believe that it's not real. So I think this is just how the so-called the, so the subjectivity of today's society works. And this is why we hate this doctrine or we try to avoid this doctrine altogether. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think uh, in our culture today, we have really elevated this idea of free will. Okay, th th this term that people love to throw around a lot, especially in the church today. You know, what about my free will? Okay, uh, what about my freedom to choose? All, all, all these things, uh, all these kind of catchphrases like to be thrown all over the place. Right? And I think that really has to do with the influence of our culture around us. Like, like what you mentioned, our culture really is one that is saturated in one's personal individual freedoms. Right? I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul, or I, I forgot how that slogan goes. But it's basically, you know, it's very popular that people are in charge of determining their own destiny, right? They don't believe in some external dictator of, or, or rather external determiner of their destiny. They, they don't want someone else to take control of their lives. They want to be the captain of their own lives, right? And I think that kind of philosophy has really infiltrated the church. And as a result, why doctrines like this, you know, unconditional election would be so anti-cultural and it's sad that it has become anti-cultural in our church today okay so with that in in mind with that foundational question in mind let, let's really get down to it um let, let's talk about what does the bible teach with regards to you know salvation uh what uh, what does god have to do in it what does man have to do in it if anything right so so let, let's really get down to business here um Maybe YB, do you know of any passages of scripture that we could go to, maybe to help us with this topic? No. No, you don't know. Okay, thank no, you. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I believe that most of us, uh, when we come to this topic specifically on unconditional election, uh, Romans nine is the most, uh, most common. To, but it's all over the it's all over the passage. I can just flip the Bible and just point at one passage. And I got it. Oh look, I got it. Titus three verse five. It says here, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It states right there. It's not by our righteousness. It is by His His mercy. Uh, there's one right there. And then, of course, if we go to chapter 9 of Romans, basically the whole passage, to sum it up, it talks about it's not by your own choice. It's nothing to do with you. I mean, the whole, the whole understanding of uh, Esau and Jacob is explored here also. Uh, give me a sec. Uh, yeah, uh, in verse 13, right? As it was written, Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Why? Why does it say so? Is that injustice on God's part? It says here by no means. And then it goes on to explore this whole idea of who is ultimately the decider of whether one comes to faith or not. And it's not dependent on man, but it's dependent on God himself. Yeah, uh, I feel that this is the most plain. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, it's, it's plain enough for us if we were to read through 
Romans and Titus, and in fact, all scriptures. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I, I think we will both say that this teaching is littered all over scripture, right? Um, yeah. And, and in essence, right? In essence, I guess once we continue, uh, before we continue looking into what scripture has to say, I think just a very plain definition of what unconditional election teaches is that God, before creation, you know, in eternity past, God decreed to save souls for himself, for his glory, for his own glory, right? God, God knows, right? God knows that the human race will be doomed, will fall into sin, all these things. So God looks at all these dead sinners who cannot come to God on their own, as what we learn in Total Depravity, right? God looks at all these dead sinners and he says to himself, for my own glory, I will sovereignly choose to save some of these people from their sin. Okay, I will, I will not pour my wrath on some of these sinners. Okay, so uh, before time, God has decreed, God has decided to save certain souls from their sins. Now, does that mean that people are saved before they were born? No, not, not necessarily. I think that's a false understanding of this doctrine. Rather, because in Ephesians chapter 2, okay, um, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were all dead. We were dead in our trespasses. And we were once children of wrath. So at one point of time, we can say that all of us were under the wrath of God. Okay? It, we, the way that we were living our life, the direction that we were headed, if we died in our sin there and then, we would have been under the wrath of God. But of course, praise be to God because He has chosen us for salvation. Okay? And, and this might manifest itself differently in different points of time for each person. But for all of the elect, as we call it, okay, the elect is basically the group of people that God has chosen to save. Okay, that's what we call the elect. Uh, for the elect, all of all of them, all of us, okay, who are part of the elect, uh, will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We will be saved by the washing of regeneration, as what Titus three verse five says, by the Holy Spirit, and we would um, we would then be saved from the wrath of God. We would have union with Christ, all these great stuff. Okay, so that's a very plain definition of unconditional election because and in that God does not see into the future, okay, and, and, and you know, uh, uh, see that we would choose Him and then as a result, He chooses us or that kind of thing. No, that, that, that's not what this doctrine teaches. But rather, it is unconditional in that God chooses on the basis of His grace alone. Right, Ephesians chapter 1 says that God saves us to the, to the praise of His glorious grace according to the counsel of His will. Right, that, that, that theme is always brought up in Ephesians 1. That God saves us according to His will, His purpose, for His own glory. Okay, that's as plain as it gets. Um, we did not do anything to gain God's favor. We did not do anything to warrant God's choosing. Okay, we were totally dead in our sins. We were just heading our own way to destruction. But God, but God, as Ephesians 2 says, right, but God being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive in Christ. Okay, to the praise of His glorious grace. So, yeah, that, that's really as much of a summary as I can give. Right, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think what Isaac brought up in Romans chapter 9 is very useful. And I think something we must take into consideration here is, this is we are not just pick uh, nitpicking 
certain passages of scripture that align with our beliefs. No, no, no. That's not what we are trying to do here. And I hope that's not what it looks like. Uh, but rather, we, we would argue, and I, I would argue that uh, this our interpretation of Romans 9 is consistent with what Romans 8 teaches, with what the whole of Romans teaches. And we have to be consistent here, right? We have to be consistent. Like, for example, okay, I'll, 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 I'll let my friend Isaac <laughs> speak. Don't worry. But just to be very quick, Romans chapter 8, you know, we see so many things. You know, Paul is laying down, you know, there's no distinction. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. Okay, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, as what we went through last session. Uh, and then we have these great promises. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right, it, who shall bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Um, who can separate us from the love of God? No, we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. You know, neither height nor depth, angels nor rulers, death or life, all these things, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, these are great promises. And these are truths that really should encourage us in the Christian life. These are so practical. But, but you know, and, and any Christian would agree with that. Any Christian would say yes and amen. But then you get to Romans chapter 9, and then you have Christians trying to say that, uh, maybe God didn't really... Uh, you know, God is not that sovereign in the sense where, you know, God did not choose one group over the other, or maybe God did not predestine certain people to hell, or, you know, people are trying to explain their way around things. But, okay, maybe this is where I will ask Isaac to, to maybe share his thoughts on. If God is not sovereign, or rather, if God is not as sovereign in the salvation of, of sinners as much as he is sovereign in you know, leaving sinners to their condemnation. Okay, if God is not as sovereign in these two aspects, then I guess what implications might that show? Or how would that affect our understanding of Romans chapter 8? You know, maybe do you have some thoughts on that? This is funny because I asked you this question just now. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yes. You did, you did. We, had, we, had a, we had a, we had a, we did my podcast just now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, I... Chris basically quoted uh, White. It's very good. It's, if, if God is not sovereign over this, then why is God sovereign over? Sovereign over nothing. He cannot be sovereign over anything if he's not sovereign over our, our salvation. I think generally when we talk about sovereignty, our understanding of sovereignty right now is a very earthly understanding of sovereignty. You know, our, when we think of sovereignty, we think of a king. We think of a prime minister, the leaders of our society. That's how we see sovereign. You know, they are the leaders of a country, they are leaders of a kingdom, but they cannot, they cannot have control over us. You know, our, we still have our own individualistic will, we still can do whatever we wish to. Yes, they can control certain aspects of our lives, but they cannot control the rest of that, uh, the rest of our lives. They cannot control our religion, they cannot control what we believe in, etc, etc, etc. But we realize that that lack of understanding of sovereignty, that understanding of sovereignty is not the true understanding of sovereignty. The kings and the prime ministers do not have full control over us. The kings and the leaders do not have full control over us. But what God has is full sovereignty. When we are talking about the sovereignty of God, it is not that mere partial sovereignty that we see in human beings, but it is the full sovereignty of his own decree and his own control over mankind. So that is very important for us to realize and that is very important for us to recognize, especially when we come to read Romans 9. It's clear, especially when we come to the later part, oh, sorry, not the later part, but the middle part of verse 
uh, of chapter 29, uh, sorry, chapter 29, chapter 9 <laughs> verses 20 and 21 onwards, in fact, has the portal no rights over the clay to make out the same lump or uh, lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That is full sovereignty, and that is true sovereignty that we see in scriptures. It is plain and it's simple. God has the right to do so, and he does so. I think that is what we need to recognize as Christians uh, today, where sovereignty is not just how we see it as the partial sovereignty, but when we look to God, it is the full sovereignty of his act and also of his will. So yeah, that's what I would say. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for that. And, and I think, uh, adding on to what he said, okay, m- I think more than just uh, you know, our understanding of this doctrine, m- it really, uh, it really exposes what we understand about the human will, uh, how how dead in sin is mankind really in? Yeah, how how dead are we really? Um, you know, can we is is part of us still kind of good that we can kind of you know still choose God on our own, or is is God really you know God alone the author and perfecter of our faith? Okay, as Hebrews puts it. But let me just bring us back to Romans 8 and 9 here real quick. Okay, so Romans chapter 8 verse 28, a very popular verse. Right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so th- this set of verses is what we call the golden chain of redemption. In that this is a continuous process. There's no breaking of this chain. All those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no separation of those verbs. And all those verbs are things that God does. Okay, in the original language, those are things that only God does. Okay, and that's very important in our understanding of Romans 9 as well. Because um, in uh, Romans chapter 9, where, where, it talks, where Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, you know, that, that Esau I hated, Jacob I loved, right? Uh, verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Remember that word, calls? Okay, Romans chapter 8, that word calls comes up quite a lot. And here, um, the word comes up again. So I think that's quite important. Because of God who calls, okay, uh, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so... Right here, Paul anticipates an objection, you know, that there's unfairness on God's part. Now, why, why does God get to exercise His will in such a way? What does this mean for our human free will? But, you know, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion 
on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, I, I can go on and, and, and read this whole passage, but I really encourage us to read Romans 9 and to see the plain explanation of Scripture. Uh, that, that really God in His, in His sovereignty makes vessels of mercy. You know, that, that's the Christians, that's the elect to really glorify His mercy and grace. But at the same time, He also leaves sinners to their destruction. He sovereignly um, you know, leaves them to their destruction to glorify His justice. Right, right. Um, so, so, I think this is crucial. I think this is crucial that, you know, Paul also says to his objectors, you know, who are you, O man? Okay, who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Because, you know, a lot of us would naturally try to question, why, why does God do this kind of thing? You know, who can, who can find fault for who can resist God's will? To which Paul simply says, who are you, Oh man, okay. Basically, what he's saying is that Paul, uh, Paul is saying that we should remember our place as God's creatures, and and we must remember, and we would do well to remember that we are not the sovereign ones of the universe. No, God is the sovereign being, the tr- only truly sovereign being of the universe, and He alone decides what happens, and He alone knows what is ultimately good. Okay, who are we to really question God's will? Who are we to question how God chooses to do things, right? So, yeah, th- 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 there's so much more I can say. Um, you know, um, maybe for now, I'll just end off here, verse 24. Or, or rather, uh, sorry, verse 23, where Paul says, you know, um, God makes vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has, say it with me, Call, <laughs> not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So you see, why why I keep emphasizing on the you know, the word call is really consistency, because Romans chapter eight, the, the those amazing promises like, you know, God, uh, who can separate us from the love of God? You no, know, God, uh, you know, works all things for the good of those who love Him, for those whom He has called. You know, these are promises for those whom God has called. And Paul is really trying to encourage his elect. He's writing to Christians. Right, but how can we still stand on those promises? How can we still be sure that God will fulfill those promises if God is not truly sovereign? No, if God's plan to save people can be thwarted by man's so-called free will. Because um, I'm, maybe Isaac can explain a bit more after this, but really our understanding of free will has thwarted our view on God's plan to save. Because a lot, what a lot of Christians believe nowadays is that you know, God does everything in His power, God tries His best to save everyone, but it is ultimately our free will. We have to respond. We have to choose God. If not, God will be powerless. You know, God, is, you know, God can't do anything you know, to stop us. God can't do anything to save us. He is utterly dependent on our free will to complete our salvation. And my friends, that is totally unbiblical. Okay, because that really makes man the ultimate sovereign one. That makes man sovereign over God. No, that God does not predestine people for his, um, for his own glory according to his own will, but rather God only chooses people because they first chose him. Now, that, that really doesn't make any sense. 
uh, yeah, and, and if that's the case, if that is really the case that man is sovereign over God, then the, then these promises in Romans chapter eight will fail, because man, because God is not the ultimate determiner of everything that goes on in the universe. Okay, at least in the area of salvation, you no, know, in that framework, man is the ultimate determiner of of his or her own salvation. And that really threatens the sovereignty of God. That really distorts the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God. And, and if that's our understanding of this teaching, then we really cannot trust in God's promises. Not only in Romans chapter 8, but in any part of scripture that God can somehow be thwarted by something outside of himself. That God's plans can be stopped by someone outside of himself. That God is not truly in control. See, that this really leads to so much disaster in terms of doctrine. And I, and I really hope that that's not what we are holding on to. That's not where we will go because that's really totally unbiblical. Now, uh, I guess uh, e- enough from me for now. Maybe uh, Isaac, do you want to, I guess, add on to anything? Sure. Uh, adding on to free will. Um, I think <clears throat> there's a very gross misunderstanding of free will and there's a very insane understanding of free will that most people have today. We don't recognize that there are limitations to our so-called quote-unquote free will. We don't have an absolute free will where it means that we can do anything. You know, what do I mean by that? Um, I can't say that, oh, I'm free, I have the free will to choose that I'm Superman. And I'll jump down the building and I'll fly. That is being stupid, right? People look at me stupidly. I'm restricted by something that is not part of me. I'm restricted by gravity. I'm restricted by the fact that I don't have wings. I wish I can grow a pair of wings, but that doesn't happen. It's the same insanity that we see in today's major issue, especially moral issues such as LGBTQ. I believe I'm a female. I'm a male, by the way, guys. If you guys cannot tell, I believe I'm a female. If I cut off my, if I cut off my private parts, oh, I become a free, I become a female. No, that is insane. Yes, you can change the looks of it, etc., whatever, but you don't change the essence of it. It's, it's crazy. That's insane. In a very similar manner, when we come to Christian faith, when it comes to Christianity, especially when Christ has went through total depravity, we are dead. <laughs> we have a certain restriction in our faith, and that restriction is deadness. If we are dead, it just means that we can't do anything. Nobody who is dead can revive himself. Not, not by his own will. He can will that he is living, but he's dead, so his will is not even... <laughs> he don't even have a will in that sense, either. So when we start to recognize that there are limitations to free will, we recognize that there's no such thing as absolute free will. Our will is restricted. And in, in this case, in our sense, as we talk, as we speak in a Christian term, our will is restricted by sin. All we want to do is sin, sin, and sin. Why does Paul say that no one does good? Not even one. Because that is our limitations. Our limitations, our, we are contained, our will is contained within the realm of sin. And that's the only thing that we can do, and that's the only thing we want to do. If there is no interference, there is no way out. And when there is an interference, it's not as though God stretched in and zapped into, uh, into that sphere and said, Hey, here I am, come, take my hand and I will lead you out. No, he grabs you out of there. You don't choose that you want to revive yourself. If you are a dead person, you don't get to choose and say that, Hey God, revive me. No, yeah. you don't do that. God revives you and then you make that decision in the first place. Even, even, brother. <laughs> even if you make a decision, God won't be like, oh, you want to die? Okay, I will smile you dead. No. In fact, if you are revived already, you won't want to be dead again. Yeah. You see, that is that 
illogical and inconsistent worldview that we have today. Everybody imagine that we are, we can have the choice, we can make the decision, but but the reality is that this is what we are surrounded by. We are surrounded by sin. Yeah. Our nature is sinful. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. There is no way out. If God draws us out, we don't want to go back in either. So that is how we have to see it. That's the worldview that we are. We need to view it in. This I feel that that is that one thing that I want to add on now is it's really that misunderstanding of free will. You know, it, are we truly free? I, I think that's the question that I want to pose to the listeners. Are we truly absolutely free as how we deem ourselves to be? So yeah, that's the one thing that I want to add on. Yeah, great stuff, man. Uh, I think that's a very good, very great question. Are we truly free? Because um, when we look at the Bible, mankind is always either in one or two states. I, and, uh, or rather, we are always slaves or something. As much as we want to fight for our own freedoms, or we think that we are the, you know, the most free creatures in the world, we are, the Bible says we are either slaves to Christ, or slaves to the devil, okay, or our yeah. sin. Right, either way, we are still in bondage, or rather we are, we are our wills and our desires are subject to something. Okay, I don't know if you want to still call that free. That's up to you. But that doesn't change the fact that we are still drawn. You know, we are still uh, captivated by something or someone. Either that is Christ or that is the devil and, you know, our sin and all of that. Um, now, uh, I guess how, how can we view this? What, what does God does in terms of his choosing to save someone? Uh, uh, let me share an analogy. Let me share an analogy. Uh what the, most Christians hold on to today, the popular view described in an analogy is that we as humans, okay, we are drowning in an ocean and that we are, yeah, they will say that we are sinful, we need God, all that stuff. Amen, right? That we are drowning in the ocean, God chose us the rope and by our free will, we have to respond, we have to grab that rope. Okay, without our response, no, God can't do anything to save us, right? He only can throw the rope, he can only do his best. We have to respond. We have to grab the rope. And once we do, God drags us back into the boat and that's how we are saved. Okay, that's, the, that's how I would say the popular view of salvation is today. But what does the Bible say in an analogy? Okay, what does the Bible teach about this, described in an analogy? I would say this. We are not drowning in the ocean. Okay? We as dead sinners, we are a rotting corpse at the bottom of the ocean. And we, yeah, we are just rotting. We, we smell gross. We are, we are being fed on by all kinds of bacteria. But, yeah, and we are hopeless. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing. But God, from the ocean bank, He sees our corpse. And God jumps into the river. God jumps into the ocean. He dives to the bottom of the shore, the, the seabed. He, he grabs our corpse. He brings it onto the shore. And He breathes life into our lungs. Okay, that's how we are saved. By God and God alone. Okay, all of God, nothing of me. I did not do anything to deserve God's salvation. I did not do anything that would make God choose me. God only chose to save me because of His grace alone. Okay, because of His purpose of election, as Romans 9 says it. Okay, now, uh, with, with that out of the way, I guess, um, because of time, Let's close off this episode by, I guess, just thinking of some practical implications. A, a lot of people might, you know, maybe some of our listeners, they might still think that, ah, this is just one of those, 
ivory tower doctrines, those, you know, uh, debated by all the scholars and all of that. What does this have to do with me? Or how, how would this doctrine impact me practically? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's what some of our listeners might want to hear. Maybe Isaac, could you help us with that? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny to talk about this because Chris, when I first became a believer, Chris was... I think it was like first first year, yeah, first year when I became when I say when I became a believer, Chris was the one that did this doctrine of tulip with me in my first year. Funny. Anyways, I just wanted to quote from Charles uh, Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers out there. Uh, yeah, I know he has passed on; his legacy still lives on. He says, "I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure. I think I will replace the word. I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would not. I would never have chosen him." I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. You see, the recognition that God has chosen you out of this world, that God is the one that ultimately gave you faith in a sense. He's the one that draws you to Christ. You reckon there is a certain level of pride in that if you say that I chose God, I did something. I had a part to play in my salvation. And there's a very misunderstanding. There's a misunderstanding of total depravity. You are not dead in your sin. You are partially dead. As the energy that Chris gave, you're not dead. You are dying. You're not dead. The implications of you being dead in sin is not dead. And so that recognition is that, oh, if I'm not dead in sin, I'm dying. So it means there is a possibility of me being able to save myself. And the logical conclusion that we ultimately get to, and the question that we ultimately get to is, why is there a need for Christ when we can save ourselves? When I can save myself by keeping the law? when it's possible to save myself by doing all the good deeds. It's all of mankind was a failure. Christ wasn't a failure. So the way you look at Christ is no longer that he is my savior. The way you look at Christ will be something like he is a good role model that I would have to learn. He is something that I would have to become by keeping God's law, by doing own, my own deeds, by keep doing righteousness. Because I have the free will to do so. I have the free will to choose Christ. That means I have the free will to do all that Christ had done also. And ultimately, the whole idea of salvation is gone. It's not there anymore. There's no need for Christ anymore. And so that is the, I feel that that is the, that is why it's so important. You know, when we come to faith, when the very start of coming to faith is about salvation. And if we can't even get salvation correct, if we can't even understand salvation properly, how then can we understand the rest of the scriptures? I think this is the one thing that I want to, I feel is very important uh. If you don't even understand that we are dead in sin, nothing in scripture can make sense to us, especially the gospel itself. So yeah, I feel that that is why it's important uh, for us to have a clear understanding of salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amen, brother. Uh, yeah, uh, to add on to that, I'll just say that this teaching is littered all over the scriptures. Okay, uh, People today, they love to complain about how God seems unfair. Right, in, in choosing some people to be saved and leaving the rest to their destruction. What about Noah? <laughs> you seem to be perfectly fine with God saving a few people, less than 10, and leaving, leaving the rest of the globe to die. <laughs> right, right, right. You're, you're perfectly fine with that, but yet now today you can complain. <laughs> There's some inconsistency there, right, on your part. Or are we going to... to no, or, or why... why Israel and not um, Babylon. Why Israel and not Assyria? Right, right. There's so many, so many things. You no, know, God's election is all over the place in the scriptures. 
This is how he has always operated. It is not some New Testament teaching. It is not some 21st century teaching. This has always been how God has operated. Okay, let's be consistent here. But I guess to close off this episode, how can this be practical to us? And my friends, this is immensely practical. Okay, I will, I will state four ways. Okay, I believe there's definitely more to this. This is not, this is not an exhaustive list. But I believe that the doctrine of predestination or unconditional election is practical and beneficial and edifying to us in four distinct manners. Number one, that predestination is powerful. Okay, why is it powerful? It's because it shows the absolute amazing grace of God. Okay, that he redeems sinners for himself, for his own glory, even though they did not do anything to deserve it. So it shows God's love. It's powerful. It shows God's love for us. People say that this doctrine limits the love of God. I say it enhances the love of God. Because we didn't deserve anything. The only thing we deserve from God is His wrath. is hell. But despite, no, but instead of that, no, God showed us mercy. And in loving us, you know, He sent His Son to die for us. Okay, so, you no, know, powerful stuff. Number two, predestination is humbling. Because it should remove, remove all grounds of boasting. Right? Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Very clear, right? You were saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Right? Salvation itself is a gift. It's a gift from God. You know, we, we, we have no grounds of boasting. We know that we do not deserve anything to do with, with our salvation. We had nothing to do about it but it is all of God. And this should humble us because even the most righteous Christian is no different from you know, the most heinous Christian you know, who, who had a history of criminal acts. You know, that, that Christian with a history of criminal acts versus the Christian who was well-behaved most of his life, on the grounds of their salvation, they're the same. You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Both of them are saved the same way both of them have been shown the same amount of grace because both of them were just as undeserving of God's mercy. Okay? That, that, that's beautiful and I think that's humbling to all of us. Um, predestination is comforting. Okay, thirdly, it is comforting because it highlights the fact that God has supreme control over the past, present and future. That God is totally sovereign and we mean it. <laughs> right? We will say that God is sovereign and we actually believe it. And we are actually consistent with our belief that God, we can trust in God's promises, right? Like Romans chapter 8 and 9, we believe that, you know, indeed nothing can separate us from the love of God. We, we can actually say that, you know, God will accomplish all that He desires, all His purposes. Nothing can thwart His hand. We can actually say that with confidence. That's how it's comforting. That, that, that. No, every time we struggle, every time we struggle with maybe even our salvation, we know that God holds us in the palm of His hand. That God is the anchor that we can cling on to. And that we know that God will see us through to the end. Because God is faithful in keeping His promises. Now lastly, predestination is objective. Because we can be certain, like how Charles Spurgeon said, you know, uh, Isaac quoted, that you know, um, those whom God has chosen, He will see to the end. You know, those of us who are in Christ, we will be in Christ all the way to the end. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is objective because we will bear fruit for Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. 
right? He says that God created us for good works that we might walk in them. You know, that those the good works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's objective because we will know who are Christians. We will know whom God has chosen because of their fruit. And we know that, praise be to God, those of us who are in Christ, we will continue to bear fruit. We will continue to be conformed to the image of Christ, as Romans 8, 28 to 30 says. You know, so it's objective. It is not subjective. This is a sure promise that we can cling on to, that God indeed has chosen us for salvation, that He has washed us with regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, these are just four ways. It's not an exhaustive, exhaustive list, but I hope that is enough to really convince us that this is not just some lofty doctrine that is impractical, but rather this is immensely practical to our day-to-day Christian living. Okay, so um, I think, uh, Isaac, do you have any closing thoughts? If not, if not, yeah. Yeah, this is closing thoughts for all those who, especially for those who believe in that you choose God, you contribute to your salvation. Uh, it's a bit tough to understand. I think just to make you guys feel a bit more comfortable, you do contribute something to your to your salvation. I think you do contribute something to this grace of God, and that is your sin. <laughs> I think just to comfort you guys, you do contribute. It is your sin, and that is one thing that I think ultimately we need to recognize. That's my closing statement for this session. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, that, that was uh, by Jonathan Edwards, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. The only thing you did in your salvation is your sin. That that. <laughs> you know, requires salvation yeah, yeah it's because of your sin that shows that you need a saviour that's the only thing that you did if, if that's that, right yeah if you want to fight for you know you, I did something I did something yeah sure you, you said yeah sure yeah. there you go <laughs> okay yeah that's great that's great stuff okay yeah thanks Isaac for, for joining me in talking about this great doctrine uh, up yes. next we'll be talking about the doctrine of limited atonement so it talks about what does it mean for Christ to die what did, what, did, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? Did Christ uh, um, come to make salvation possible? Or did he actually come to guarantee the salvation of his elect? You know, so I'm excited to really talk about that as well. And uh, I'm not sure if I'll have any special guests in the episode. Uh, we'll see about that. But I hope y'all are excited. So till then, God bless. Bye.